Welcome to Felon, True Crime Podcast, Episode 9, Anna and Gracie. In this episode, we discuss another case from Melbourne, Victoria. A warning to listeners that this episode contains descriptions of crimes of an extremely violent nature, so once again, listener discretion is advised. A lone man walks to the edge of his backyard and turns, staring intently at his target standing only metres away across the other side of the lawn. He raises an object slowly, all the while his eyes focus tightly on his target. He breathes in and out, calming his nerves as he musters the courage to pull the trigger. His finger hovers over the trigger and settles lightly on it. He inhales and holds his breath. He pulls on the trigger increasing the tension as it engages and with a solid click the projectile is sent hurtling towards the target and lodges firmly into it. He breathes out with a sigh, collects the projectile and makes his way back inside. The 25th of March 2004 When Anna Kemp left her family home with her 19-month-old daughter Gracie, it sparked an investigation by police and a media frenzy. Anna's family in New Zealand waited anxiously for updates from police in Melbourne, Australia. The first that friends of Anna heard of her disappearance was relayed to them by her husband John. On the 25th of March 2004, John called two of Anna's friends with the news that she had left him for another man. Anna abruptly stopped communicating with her mother Lilia Gebler in New Zealand and after a number of failed attempts to call, her mother left messages on the home answering machine sounding concerned. Upon receiving these messages, John called her back and broke the sad news of their recent separation. On Monday the 29th of March, four days after leaving the family home, Anna's brother received an email from her. Anna apologised for not being in touch that she had been distracted with the fallout of the separation. She informed him and her family that she had been seeing another man to whom she had fallen pregnant, and she had moved in with him in the suburb of Chelsea. She claimed to be happy with the new mystery man and that she was looking forward to the prospect of a fresh start for her and Gracie. Thinking the contents of the email was out of character for Anna, her family informed the police in Dunedin, New Zealand, and reported her as a missing person. A New Zealand police officer called Anna's home number and was greeted by John. John informed the officer that Anna had indeed left him for another man and confirmed that she was now living in the suburb of Chelsea with this man and their daughter Gracie. John passed on Anna's cell phone number to the officer. On Monday the 5th of April, Anna again emailed her brother addressing the issue of her lack of communication. The email stated the following. Hi again. Just a quick message to say hello. I got your email and I understand all of your concerns, but rest assured, Gracie and I are fine and well and settling into our new life and surrounding. We are living in a suburb called Chelsea, which seems nice enough and is about 25 kilometres closer to Melbourne than Mornington. Mum, I hope you are feeling okay and I am glad you got my first message. As I said, I just want a break from everything and I am not trying to punish anyone. I'm obviously going through a lot of changes and still in an adjustment stage, which I guess is normal. 
I got your Easter parcel from John last week, which was much appreciated. Thanks. You can never have too much chocolate. I don't think I'll be sending anything for Easter apart from my love to you all. Not long for you to go now before you can escape the locals, and I bet you can't wait. I know you would, but can you please send this to Mum? I'm not really having much contact with John apart from days like today when I collect some more of Gracie's things. I can't believe she has so much at her age. We both know that although it isn't a pleasant thing to go through, it is for the best in regards to everyone's long-term happiness. In respect to Gracie, there clearly needs to be some big decisions made in the future, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I got some details through John of a guy in Interpol who had been apparently contacted in New Zealand. I must admit I was a little disappointed to hear that had happened, but I'm not going to make an issue or argument out of it. That's exactly what I'm trying to avoid these days for everyone's sake. My love goes to all of you and I wish everybody a safe and happy Easter and I'll be thinking of you. Love, Anna. Over the following weeks, Anna made contact with friends and relatives through cell phone messages and letters. Anna's mother received flowers and gifts from Anna for her birthday and Mother's Day. Her bank card was used on a number of occasions to withdraw money. But with all these signs of life, no one had seen Anna or heard her voice. Anna Marie Kemp was born in New Zealand. At the age of 26, she relocated to Australia and moved to the Mornington area, located about 60 kilometres or 35 miles south of Melbourne. Mornington is a seaside town and a popular tourist destination known for its village feel, its beaches. The surrounding area is a popular destination for its wineries, day spas and restaurants. While living in the Mornington area, Anna found employment at the local Commonwealth Bank. It was here that she met her soon-to-be husband, John. The two worked at the same branch together for a brief time before becoming romantically involved, and in 1994, they were married. Following their marriage, Anna and John lived in various locations in Mornington and its surrounding areas. In August of 2002, the pair welcomed a daughter into the world and named her Gracie Louise. But the joy of their firstborn will be short-lived. Shortly after her birth, Gracie was diagnosed with a congenital abnormality in her hips, which required her to wear a corrective harness for the first three months of her life. This made her extremely unsettled, and she had difficulty sleeping, placing a significant strain on John and Anna's relationship. Even when Gracie no longer required the corrective harness, she still remained very unsettled, exhibiting difficulties settling and feeding. This prompted Anna to seek professional help. In November of 2002, Anna attended Hillview Maternity Unit of Peninsula Health. She checked in complaining that she was feeling very anxious and unable to cope with the escalating situation. Anna had three inpatient admissions for respite with Gracie in an attempt to establish regular feeding and sleeping patterns and to overcome her personal anxiety. Despite some relief, John and Anna would still struggle with their relationship. In September of 2003, John, Anna and Gracie moved into a new home in Prince Street, Mornington. It was soon after this move that Anna fell pregnant with a second child. A child John was now claiming did not belong to him. 
Over two months passed, and still no one had seen or spoken directly to Anna. Aside from a series of text messages, letters and emails, she had physically vanished. Anna's mother had maintained contact with police in New Zealand, and she had a bad feeling about the situation from the start. This sentiment was echoed by police. On the 20th of May, 2004, Victoria Police officially started their investigation into the disappearance of Anna and Gracie. In the meantime, police in New Zealand trawled through all the correspondence that Anna's family had received from her, liaising with detectives in Melbourne. Authorities on both sides of the ocean held grim fears for the well-being of Anna and her little daughter Gracie. On the 26th of May, police in Melbourne held a press conference. John declined to attend, stating he didn't feel as though he was able to face the media. Two of Anna's friends made public appeals to Anna to make contact and let them know her whereabouts, but their pleas went unanswered. Media coverage of the case escalated, and so too did police investigations in Melbourne and New Zealand. In the following days, John made several public appearances. With trembling hands, holding up a photo of his little daughter Gracie, John faced the cameras. I didn't, I didn't report her missing because I'd, I'd had some contact with her, but her mum's reported her missing and from New Zealand because I don't think she's had any contact with her parents. As John became the focus of police and the media circus, he went on to publicly state the following. I haven't harmed my wife or my daughter. I haven't harmed either of them. Anna, our marriage may be over, but I still love you. And you are the mother of our beautiful daughter, Gracie, whom we both adore more than anyone else. I know the current circumstances are very stressful for you and everyone concerned, including all our families, and that we are very private people. We need to resolve this. My biggest fear is being denied a part of Gracie's future. John's family stood by his side as he made these desperate pleas to his estranged wife. All the while, he maintained the claim that he had seen Anna a number of times following her leaving the family home. Detectives investigating Anna's movements prior to her disappearance established the following timeline. Friday, the 19th of March, 2004, four days prior to her disappearance. A friend of Anna's had stayed the night at John and Anna's home. She described her as appearing happy and that both John and Anna's behaviour seemed normal, neither exhibiting any animosity towards each other. Sunday, the 21st of March, two days prior to her disappearance. John, Anna and Gracie attended a family picnic to celebrate a nephew's birthday. All accounts from those who attended indicated the couple seemed happy and nothing untoward in the behaviour was observed. Monday, the 22nd of March, the day prior to her disappearance. Anna dropped Gracie off at her daycare centre in Mornington. She returned to the centre and collected her at noon. Staff at the centre recalled Anna gave no indication that anything was wrong. The same morning, she called her mother in New Zealand. Her mother remembered having a long conversation with her. Again, Anna gave no indication of any trouble between her and John. On the afternoon of the same day, Anna spoke to a friend on the phone and arranged to meet with them on Friday the 26th of March. 
This meeting was noted on a calendar in the family home. Later that night, at 8.24pm, another friend called her, and based on the friend's account, they had a long and seemingly normal conversation. Tuesday, the 23rd of March, the day of her disappearance. Anna called a health insurance fund and made an inquiry into adding her unborn child to the family health cover. This conversation with the health insurance operator is the last documented conversation that Anna had with anyone outside her home. John made the statement that on this night, Anna was collected from the family home by another man and she left in his car, taking with her clothing and some personal belongings. Wednesday, the 24th of March, the day after her disappearance. Gracie remained with John until the following Sunday, and according to John, she was collected by Anna and taken to live with her and the mystery man in the suburb of Chelsea, about a 30-minute drive north of Mornington. Thursday, the 25th of March, John called two of Anna's friends and updated them of her departure, sharing with them that Anna had left him from another man and that they could contact her using her cell phone. Friday the 26th of March, John dropped Gracie at her daycare centre and informed the staff there that she would not be attending anymore due to relocating to live with her mother. The last time Gracie was seen by anyone was by the daycare workers walking with her father John hand in hand out the front gate. Sunday the 28th of March, John claimed that Anna collected Gracie and took some of her belongings to the new residence in Chelsea. He described their new home to Anna's mother as a bigger and better place. Monday the 29th of March, Anna's brother Gerald received the first email from Anna outlining her separation from John. Almost two months after Anna and Gracie disappeared, Acting on concerns voiced by Anna's family, Victorian police visited John in the home he had once shared with them. In a statement to police, John indicated that he and Anna had experienced marital disharmony for some time before she had left him, and that she had recently made the confession that she was pregnant to another man. He claimed that she had returned to the family home a number of times to collect personal items. He denied any involvement in the disappearance of his wife and daughter. Based on John's statement that he had seen both Anna and Gracie a number of times and the fact that Anna had only been in contact with friends and relatives through indirect forms of communication, police were suspicious. Acting on their suspicion, detectives placed John under covert surveillance. During this time, his activities brought him under further scrutiny. John was observed dumping potentially incriminating items in a garbage bin at Mount Martha a Bayside area not far from Mornington. He was also seen retrieving a credit card from a plastic bag hidden in bushes near a public toilet block in Mornington. On the 10th of June, 2004, John was again interviewed by police at Mornington. In a long recorded meeting with police, he maintained his story that Anna had left with Gracie voluntarily on the 23rd of March. On the 22nd of June, three months after the disappearance of his wife and daughter, John was arrested and interviewed again, this time by homicide police at the St Kilda Road headquarters. Two interviews were conducted on that day. During the first, he continued to deny any involvement in their disappearance. During the second, 
He changed his story, and the true fate of Anna and Gracie would be revealed. The night of Tuesday, the 23rd of March, 2004, Anna and John had argued, just as he originally claimed, but this would be the only truth that he had spoken about what occurred that night. Sometime between 9 and 10 o'clock, Anna and John went to bed. John lay awake, stewing over the argument the pair had had earlier. As Anna slept next to him, he brooded over his situation, a marriage in which he was unhappy. It was time to put his plan into action. John quietly eased himself out of bed and made his way to the garage to retrieve an object he had purchased weeks before. Gripping it tight, he returned to the bedroom and in the darkness stood over his sleeping wife. In his hands, he held a spear gun. Before returning to the room, he had loaded it. The tension of the stretch rubber pulled against the projectile as he held the tip of the spear only inches from Anna's head. He had tested the gun weeks before in his backyard. During his test shot, he launched the spear into an inanimate object. This time, the target was a person he had once loved, but had since come to resent. This resentment had become so strong, it had led him to wish her dead. But on this night, it became more than just a wish. He inhaled, held his breath, and pulled the trigger. The spear launched from the gun, pierced Anna's temple, and embedded deep in her head. John had expected silence, but he could still hear Anna breathing. Frantically, he loaded another spear, and with a click of the trigger, sent the second driving into her skull. With this second brutal blow, she died. John left her body on the bed, covered her in towels, and made his way downstairs to sleep on the sofa bed. All the while, his 19-month-old daughter was asleep in a nearby room. The following day, John attempted to remove the spears, but they were so well embedded, he was unable to do so. He unscrewed the spear shafts and left the tips in place. He dug a shallow grave in the backyard and buried Anna's body. With a number of phone calls and emails, he would commence his web of deception. On the same day, John ventured out with Gracie to Sport Phillip Marine Store, the same store he had purchased the spear gun, and he bought an additional spear. The evening of Saturday, the 27th of March, John put his baby daughter Gracie to sleep in her cot. He drank a number of glasses of whiskey and coke, and around 9pm, he made his way to the garage. Once again, he retrieved the spear gun. He loaded it with a newly purchased spear. He made his way to Gracie's room, where she lay sound asleep. He stood over her with the tip of the spear aimed at her tiny head, closed his eyes, and pulled the trigger. The spear struck her on the left side of the head and pierced her skull, but she did not die. She woke abruptly and screamed. John scurried back downstairs. All the while, Gracie's screams echoed from her room. He collected the spear shafts he had removed from Anna, returned to Gracie, and loaded the first rod, firing the gun again. She still did not die. He loaded the second rod and fired. 
Again, she did not die. In his final act of brutality, he pulled the first spear from her head, loaded the gun, and with a final desperate shot, Gracie was gone. Following morning, John returned to Gracie's room, and with a towel covering his face, pulled the spears from her head. Gracie's tiny body was wrapped in garbage bags and a tarpaulin, and bound with black duct tape. With her body, John disposed the spear gun, the spears, and some of Gracie's clothes and toys at the Mornington Garbage Transfer Station. The same day, he called Anna's mother in New Zealand, and this is when he made the comment that Gracie was now in a bigger and better place with Anna. He also made a call using Anna's cell phone and took out money from an ATM in the suburb of Chelsea using Anna's credit card. Between this day and the 15th of May, John made a number of calls using her cell phone. On Monday the 29th of March, two days after the death of Gracie, John sent an email to Anna's brother in New Zealand using Anna's email account and posing as Anna in an attempt to relieve their concerns as to why Anna had not been in touch. It also attempted to create the scenario that Anna had left him for another man to whom she had fallen pregnant. Later that day, John travelled to a Bunnings hardware store in Frankston, a nearby suburb, and purchased a roll of duct tape, two tarpaulins, and an 1800 watt Homelite brand electric chainsaw. The following day, he exhumed Anna's body from the shallow grave in the backyard and used the chainsaw to cut her body into three pieces. These pieces were wrapped in the tarpaulins and secured with duct tape. He made another trip to the Mornington Rubbish Transfer Station, dumping Anna's body, the chainsaw, and various pieces of evidence. Over a period of three weeks, late in June and early in July of 2004, police conducted an extensive search of a landfill site where waste from the Mornington dump had been transferred. The remains of both Anna and Gracie were found, and following a pathology examination, at the Victoria Institute of Forensic Medicine, it was determined the pair had indeed been killed and disposed of in the manner described by John. With John's confession and forensic evidence sealing his guilt, the question that troubled all who would hear about the crimes was a resounding why. Why would a man kill those closest to him? The woman he had vowed to cherish and protect, his baby daughter who had slept helplessly in his care, and his unborn child whom he should have looked forward to welcome into the world. During the interview with police, in which John confessed to the murders, he attempted to explain what led him to it. He claimed his marriage was unhappy, that his wife was controlling and moody. He shared that he resented her for what he saw as coming between him and his family, claiming she would not allow him to see them as often as he would have liked. He continued that he felt that she wore the pants in the relationship for which he saw himself as being demasculated. In addition to his deteriorating relationship with Anna, the news of a second pregnancy was not welcomed by him. He had struggled with the birth of Gracie and felt that she came between him and Anna. It was noticed by Anna's brother that John exhibited a disinterest in Gracie and also with the news of Anna's pregnancy with a, with a second child. Anna's mother also recalled his disinterest in Gracie to the point that he seemed to resent her, claiming that when she saw him carry her, it was like he was carrying a log. Whatever the reasons offered by John or Anna's family, 
it was stated by the judge during his sentencing that they provide neither justification nor excuse for anything you have done. The brutal nature of his crimes shocked police, the media, and members of the public alike, earning him the nickname, the Mornington Monster. On the 5th of August, 2005, John Miles Sharp pleaded guilty to the murders of his wife, Anna Maria Kemp, and baby daughter, Gracie Louise Sharp. He was sentenced to two consecutive terms of life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 33 years. At present, Sharp resides in protective custody due to threats of violence from fellow inmates, proving that even the most hardened criminals are disgusted by his acts. Just over 2,000 kilometres from Melbourne, across the Tasman Sea, on the South Island of New Zealand, a lone headstone bearing three names stands as a bitter reminder of the tragic event, the following words inscribed upon it. In loving memory of Anna Maria Kemp and her precious daughter Gracie Louise and her unborn son, Francis, tragically taken, may they rest in peace. <laughs>